Welcome to the first anniversary edition of the Russian Rulers Podcast, Part 1. And I'm your host, Mark Schaus. When I first started this podcast, I thought I knew something about Russian history. I mean, I had taken a year of it in college, and I'd read a number of works over the course of the past 30 years of my life. What I discovered early on is how little I really knew, and how much richer Russia's history is than I ever dreamed of. I thank all of you for listening to me go on about something I so enjoy during my downtime from my real-world job. Your comments and suggestions over the past year have pushed me on when I thought I was going to make this just a monthly event. The number of subscribers to the podcast is another one of those things that has truly blown me away. If you had told me that one year after starting, I would have over 68,000 subscribers and would have had over a quarter million downloads of my episodes, I would have told you that you were nuts. But here we are, one year later, and both those things came true. Thanks to all of you. Now, on to a multi-part review of the Russian Rulers podcast. Uh, this is going to be something where it's going to be in addition to the regular episodes that you'll be listening. So you'll be getting about two or three uh, episodes a week now until we get this all done. And I'm going to do it in bits and parts. Uh, it's not going to be totally smooth, uh, the transition from one ruler to another. But I just want to give you a basic overview of what we've listened to since we started this podcast on April 30th of uh, 2010. So here we go. Back in episode one, we recounted the early days of the scattered peoples we were to call the Rus. These Slavic peoples were first invaded by the Scythians, then the Sarmatians from Persia, followed by the Goths, the Huns, Bulgars, the cruel Avars, and the Khazars. All were gradually absorbed into the population, giving the Rus an international flair. Their religion was a pagan one, worshipping many gods, with the chief among them, Perun, the god of thunder. Then, around 862 AD, we come across the first Russian ruler, a man who became a legend, and his name was Rurik. A leader of a Viking tribe known as the Varangians, Rurik came to Russia under the guise of a protector for the people living in the area known as Novgorod. Now, instead of protecting them, he said, I'm going to take over this land, and he started a dynasty, one that was to last for 736 years until the death of Fyodor, the son of Ivan the Terrible, in 1598. By the time of his death in 879, Rurik's kingdom stretched from the Baltic Sea in the north to the southern steppes. It was a vast region with many fiefdoms which were to come under the control of the Grand Princes of Kiev, and the princes were known as the Knyaz, or the Veliki Knyaz, and the first of whom was Oleg of Novgorod, who ruled from 879 to 912. Oleg started the process of consolidating his power by either having local chiefs pledge allegiance to him, or if that failed, he simply had them killed. When he had Rurik's two brothers, Askold and Deer, murdered, he had enough power to move the seat of power from Novgorod to Kiev. So Oleg is considered the first ruler of that ancient town. From 907 to 911, Oleg pressured the Byzantine Empire through raids into their territories. Emperor Leo VI signed a treaty with Oleg, giving the Kievians a preferred trade position. 
This was the time that the Byzantine chroniclers first started calling the people ruled by Oleg as the Rus. While Rurik is considered the founder of the line of rulers, it is Oleg who really starts things towards the Russian Empire. Next up was Rurik's son Igor, who comes of age and proceeds to attack Constantinople in 941 and is defeated, but turns around in 944 and attacks once again. This time, Emperor Romanus decides, instead of fighting, let's sign a peace treaty. Igor returns to Kiev and begins shaking down the local tribes until one had enough and killed him. His next in line, Sviatoslav, was too young to rule, so his mother, Olga, becomes regent and de facto ruler. Now, Olga is legendary to the history of Russia, as she is the first ruler to convert to Christianity in 955. Now, instead of expanding her empire, as been, had been done before, she sought to consolidate her power, leaving expansion to her son Sviatoslav. When Sviatoslav came of age, his first conquest was the Khazar Empire, followed by wars against the Ossetians, the Circassians, and the Viachi, all of whom who swore their alliance to the Veliki Knyaz of Kiev. Within two years, the Russian state doubled in size. Fyatoslav, now full of himself, makes his army available as mercenaries to the Byzantine emperor Nicephorus Phocas to beat back the army of the Bulgars, which they easily accomplish. Not content with that, Sviatoslav decides to attack Constantinople, but Phocas is no longer in power. The new ruler, John Semescus, turns out to be one of the great generals of history, and he utterly destroys the Russian army. 20,000 men headed back to Kiev, but were met by the Pechenegs, who wiped them out. The next eight years are spent in fighting a civil war between Sviatoslav's three sons, Yaropolk, Oleg, and Vladimir. In the end, Vladimir was to prove victorious, and we find the first ruler of the land of the Rus to be given the name the Great. Vladimir was to bring Christianity in the form of Greek Orthodoxy to Russia after carefully selecting it after reviewing the other major religions of the day. His people did not convert entirely willingly, so he forced them all to be baptized, whether they liked it or not. But then he made a really truly brilliant move by not having the church services in Greek, but in Russian, which made the acceptance by the people that much easier. By 1015, Vladimir, through his, son's Boris, through his son Boris, finally defeated and crushed their mortal enemies, the Pechenegs. But he did not do a very good job of handing off his kingdom as another civil war broke out, led by Sviatopolk the Accursed. Sviatopolk's killing of his brothers, Boris and Gleb, elevated the two to become the first Russian Orthodox saints. That is, Russians who became saints. By the end of the civil war, it was Yaroslav who ended up victorious. It was during the reign of Yaroslav the Wise that Kiev's role was at its zenith. The city was now one of the largest and most diverse in the world. His sons and daughters were to marry nobility throughout Europe, which was not to happen again until after Peter the Great's time, some 650 years in the future. Yaroslav tried to change how rule was handed down to his sons, but it too failed to deliver the goods as civil war once again broke out when the Grand Prince died. 
In the end, Vladimir Monomak reluctantly takes control and helps defeat a new enemy, the Cumans. But the deterioration of Kiev as a great power begins when Yuri Dolgeruki took control and begins building of a fortified city called Moscow. When Yuri is killed, his son Andrei Bogolyubsky takes revenge and destroys Kiev. Andrei's style of ruling was different than those who came before him. Instead of having the democratic vetch system within his realm, Andrei instituted a system that was to last until Boris Yeltsin, some 800 years later. He introduced absolutism. When Andrei is murdered by the boyars, another civil war breaks out. Over the next two years, there was almost constant fighting, but eventually, Vesvilad II, known as the Big Nest, the younger brother of Andrei Bogolyubsky, prevailed. Vesvilad was named the Big Nest because of all the children he fathered. He also continued on with the autocratic way of his older brother, Andrei. He reigned until his death in 1212, having ruled the lands for 36 years. But this was the end of self-rule for the Russian people, as a new terror was awaiting them, with the invasion of the Mongols. City after city fell to the Mongols. Nothing could stop their onslaught. So then came the event that was to mold Russian policy and behavior for the coming 200 years. The new Grand Prince, Yaroslav II, went to Batu Khan and subjugated himself and asked if he could become the Grand Prince as a vassal of the Mongols. Batu agreed, and the Prince of Novgorod also became the Prince of Vladimir. The Mongols during this time period were not done conquering and destroying everything in their path. Chernigov was destroyed, and in 1240, poor, hapless Kiev, or what was left of it, was almost wiped off the face of the earth. Once equal in population to that of Paris, some 80,000, when with some estimates claiming 100,000 inhabitants, by 1240, less than 200 homes remained. Alexander Nevsky comes into the picture at this time to become one of the early heroes of Russian history with his defeat of the invading Teutonic Knights in the Battle on the Ice at Lake Piepas. The Mongols, always impressed by military achievement and valor, had a great deal of respect for Alexander. So much so that when the princedom of Vladimir became open, Batu chose Alexander to fill the spot. Now leader of both Novgorod and Vladimir, Alexander's influence over the Russian people grew. It cannot be stressed enough that the greatness of Alexander Nevsky was not his military victories, which were beneficial, but were not long-lasting. No, his gift to the Russian people was their very existence. As I mentioned before, if he had used his military prowess against the Mongols, he would have undoubtedly lost, and the very existence of the Russian people would have been in doubt. He was, and should always be considered, one of the saviors of Russia. The common man bore the brunt of the taxes due to the Mongols. The wealthy and the powerful, when presented with increased taxation, merely passed it on down the line. When the people arose and objected to the burden placed upon them, it wasn't the Mongols who quashed them, it was their own people. This is the seed of the shackling of the people of Russia, known as serfdom. The bribery of the Khan of the Mongols made it totally apparent to all 
or Russia that no prince was anything more than a puppet of the real and total power that was the Golden Horde. The people had little to no respect for the princes anymore. Instead, they felt total disgust for these pretenders to power. It was at this point in 1270 we enter the real dark ages of Russia. It wasn't until 1480, 210 years later, that the Russians finally threw off the Mongol yoke, that they emerged back onto the international scene. It was as if an impenetrable wall had been drawn down, entrapping the Russian people in their misery. This separation was to continue to some degree until Peter the Great dragged the people of Russia out of their isolation some 400 years later. The next important grand prince was Daniel of Moscow, one of the sons of Alexander Nevsky. Daniel is credited with building the first church and monastery in Moscow, which was to have grand implications in the future. He also sided with his brothers Michael of Tver and Ivan of Pereyaslav in their battle to gain the principality of Novgorod from Andre. By helping Ivan, who was childless when he died, he gained all of his land, which greatly increased the size and prestige of Moscow. At the age of 42 in 1303, Daniel, the man credited with making Moscow a power to be dealt with, died, leaving his son Yuri to continue on. Originally, the rule over the Russians was based out of Mongolia, but gradually, the Golden Horde, first a part of the Mongol state, but later as the years passed, an independent state whose capital was Sarai. They were also not a very organized ruler. The Mongols in the long run brought with them not leadership by rules, but intimidation through anarchy, cruelty, lawlessness, and corruption. They were able to conquer whatever they wanted on horseback, but they could not rule from the saddle. Yuri and Dmitri, two rivals for the throne of Grand Prince of Moscow, were dead, and a new ruler to help the Mongols control their territory was needed. And in comes Ivan I, Yuri's younger brother, whom they named Grand Prince of Vladimir, the tax collector's title, in 1328. Ivan Moneybags was already an exceedingly talented Grand Prince of Moscow, who knew how to balance the accumulation of wealth, the enriching of his overlords, the Golden Horde, and keeping the people under him happy. Keep the common folk happy, and you ease any pressure from within. Keep the Golden Horde happy with a steady stream of money, and you can amass personal wealth unabated. Add to it an excellent relationship with the all-powerful Orthodox Church, and you can't go wrong. Ivan was a genius. He balanced taxation and generosity quite well. But what he did with all of this money was what set him apart from his contemporaries. He would loan money to his fellow princes with their land being collateral, basically a mortgage. When they failed to make their loan repayments, he repossessed their lands. Sometimes force was needed to collect his money or land, but he would always collect as his repo man was the Golden Horde. Pretty soon the backwater town of Moscow would own a large chunk of the Russian countryside due to Ivan. Simeon the Proud was to continue his father's ways with full cooperation from brothers Ivan and Andre. He furthered the practice of loaning money to landowners and repossessing them when they couldn't pay and skimming money from the taxes paid to the horde. 
and of course he had to fend off the inevitable claims of Constantine of Zuzdal and Constantine of Tver for the Vladimir and Moscow principalities. But the use of bribes worked their magic on the Khan, and Simeon retained his authority. He, like his father, claimed the title of Grand Prince of all Russia. An outbreak of the Black Plague cut short Simeon's life at the young age of 36 in 1353, and also killed his younger brother, Andre, just six weeks later. In came Ivan II, also known to history as either Ivan the Meek or Ivan the Fair. He was thought of by his contemporaries as being an apathetic ruler who toyed with the idea of breaking from the Mongol yoke and allying with the Lithuanians, but abandoned that early on. Dmitry Donskoy, another hero of Russian lore, was to take control from his father Ivan II when he died, and this was to be the beginning of the end of the chokehold of the Mongols on Russia. Next episode, we will continue with the review of Russia from Rurik to Catherine the Great. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, next one, we're going to start with Dmitry Donskoy and his uh, famous battle, where he was able to uh, begin the breakdown of the Mongol control of the Russian countryside. We're also going to have episode 47. The regularly scheduled episode will be up on Sunday. Uh, hope you enjoy that one too. Some interesting things about Catherine that we're going to go over. And again, uh, please visit the websites at russianrulers.podhoster.com or go to our growing Facebook uh, community and it's a Russian Rulers History Podcast. And uh, please leave a suggestion. We're getting more of those out there and ask questions, uh, make a comment. I'd like to say hi to Martha uh, Green and tell her uh, thanks for the comment and the question about the pogroms of 1870 and why they were, uh, the uh, Jews were singled out by the Russian nobility. And I put an answer up on Facebook about that. And again, uh, and hope you enjoyed this. And as always, das vidanya i spasiba bolshoya.